Welcome to Alec Across the States, the premier state policy podcast. I'm Dan Reynolds, your host. Today, we're going to be talking about trade policy. Calling in, because this is a completely remote podcast recording, is Colin Grabo, a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Colin, thanks so much for calling in. Thanks for having me on. Also on the podcast is Alec's own Carla Jones. She is the Senior Director of the International Relations and Federalism Task Force here at ALEC. Carla, thanks very much for calling in. Thank you for arranging this, Dan. Yeah, of course. So, Colin, your work covers the gamut across trade, including things like uh, the U.S. Sugar Program and also the Jones Act, which is what we're going to be discussing here today. Many of our listeners might not know what the Jones Act is, but they probably remember it making news a few years ago when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico but we're going to get to that a little bit later. To start off our conversation, Colin, can you let our listeners know what the Jones Act is and why it was enacted? Sure. So the Jones Act is Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, and it basically mandates that uh, any vessels transporting goods by water within the United States, so from one point in the United States to another point in the United States, has to meet four conditions. Those conditions are that the vessel has to be registered, you know, flagged in the United States, has to be at least 75% U.S. crewed, has to be at least 75% U.S. owned, and the vessel has to be built here in the United States. And as far as, you know, why this law was enacted, uh, you know, that's an interesting question, and the backstory there, I think, is commonly misunderstood. Um, I think the Jones Act is best understood as a tweak or an update to existing cabotage law. So cabotage is, these are laws governing transportation domestically, so within the United States. And we've had laws like the Jones Act on our books basically since the country was founded. Uh, I think the first cabotage law goes back to 1789. But I think what, what people miss or, or is not commonly understood is that back then, uh, it was a very different landscape. It was a very different world. Back at this time, the United States was one of the world's premier shipbuilders. Ships back then tend to be built out of wood, of course. The United States had ample wood resources, plenty of forests, easy access to timber. We had a lot of um, knowledgeable, skilled shipbuilders who had immigrated here from, from the United Kingdom and elsewhere in Europe, where they were also uh, skilled at building ships. And we were very much a maritime country. All 13 colonies had some seaboard. So when the government restricted the use for domestic transportation to U.S. built and U.S. flagged ships, it wasn't that great of an imposition. But as time went on, as decades passed, and shipbuilding changed, it moved to uh, steamships, and moved to iron ships, uh, the U.S. started to get left behind. That protectionism that we start off with really started to have some serious adverse consequences. The U.S. got left behind. They stuck with wooden ships. They were slower to adapt technological changes. And then we got to a point where after World War I, Senator Wesley Jones of Washington State held hearings on how to revitalize the U.S. merchant marine. And when he did this, there were some shipping companies in his home state there in Washington out of Seattle who saw an opportunity. And they said, hey, um, we think that there are some loopholes uh, in this law that if they were changed could really be advantageous to us. Basically, they were concerned about competitors in Canada who were transporting goods from the United States. The goods would come from the United States, go to Vancouver, and then from Vancouver to Alaska. And these shipping interests in Seattle, they didn't want that competition. They wanted the Alaska market all to themselves. So they went to Congress and they basically said, hey, 
if you change our existing laws and make these, uh, so here's some legislative language we suggest to amend these laws to cut out that foreign competition, that would be really helpful to us. And that's exactly what happened. If you look at the Jones Act today, I'd say it's roughly 70-80%. That language is what the shipping companies in Seattle asked for. So that's really the true backstory to the Jones Act. It's basically, it was a favor to shipping interests in Senator Jones' home state of, of Washington. Huh, that's really interesting. And I, I like how you began talking about the revolutionary era and the mindset then. Um, this is a, a funny aside, but one of my favorite old school revolutionary flags is the appeal to heaven flag where there is a pine tree on it. And that's actually directly related to your conversation about the shipbuilding economy. It was actually kind of a, for lack of a better term, a cocky play out of the Massachusetts colony at the time because they managed Maine, which was complete, or Maine was not its own colony. It was part of the Massachusetts Commonwealth. And Maine was just filled with a bunch and a bunch of timber. So the flag was actually there to say, hey guys, we've got a bunch of timber in reserve, so you better watch out. But bringing back to kind of today, what states and you know what territories, because we are a, a state policy-oriented organization and also podcast, what states and territories are most adversely affected by the Jones Act? So the, the obvious ones would be the non-contiguous states and territories. We're talking here about Alaska, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, and Guam. They are all subjected to the Jones Act. Guam nominally has an exemption from that U.S. build provision, but practically speaking, uh, they are subject to it because any ship going to Guam is going to stop in Hawaii along the way. And if you stop in Hawaii, you have to be U.S. built. So these are the most uh, obvious victims of the Jones Act. There was a, a GAO study, Government Accountability Office study, back in, uh, I believe, 1986 that calculated that the Jones Act, just the U.S. build provision of loan, the cost of it is equivalent to 2% of personal income in Alaska. We have examples from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York that calculated that to ship a, a container of household goods from the east coast of Puerto Rico is roughly twice as much as expensive as it's in that same container to nearby Jamaica or the Dominican Republic, which are not subject to the Jones Act. So these are very considerable uh, increases in, in costs. And of course, these non-contiguous states and territories here in the 48 contiguous states, the U.S. mainland, we have shipping, we have transportation alternatives. You can put something on a truck, you can put it on rail, you can use a pipeline. But those alternatives don't exist, certainly with regard to Puerto Rico or Hawaii, which are islands, and to a much lesser extent uh, with Alaska. So this is very much a problem for them. But I'd like to emphasize that it's not only a problem for the non-contiguous states and territories. This is not a Hawaii problem. This is not an Alaska problem. This is very much an American problem for two reasons. One, because shipping is so expensive from the U.S. mainland to uh, these non-contiguous states and territories. What they often do is they will buy the products from other countries because it's an international voyage. Instead of a domestic voyage, there's no Jones Act. So, for example... We have the situation where the United States is the world's leading exporter of what's called liquefied petroleum gas. So we're talking basically here propane, butane. Hawaii cannot buy it from the U.S. mainland, even though we're the world's largest exporter, because there are no Jones Act ships to transport it. So instead, they have to buy it from foreign sources. They bought it from as far away as Africa instead of the U.S. mainland. Puerto Rico, same thing, but with uh, liquefied natural gas, you know, uh, LNG, that they use for about one-third of their power generation. 
So they will buy it from foreign sources because buying American is impossible because the ships to transport it don't exist. So that's a problem for them because they pay more. And it's a problem for people on the mainland who can't sell the goods to them. But the other way it affects the other 48 states is that this is one more form of transportation we don't really have access to. There is not a lot of shipping uh, within the 48 states. To the extent there is, it's basically to move oil from one part of the country to another. Out of the 99 Jones Act ships, 56 of them are tankers. And the other uh, ships mainly service, the other 40-some ships mainly service uh, those non-contiguous states and territories. It's just not an option, which is crazy when you think about it. We have an East Coast, a West Coast, Gulf Coast, major metropolitan areas along our coast. You'd think we would be a candidate to have plenty of shipping uh, along our coast, but it really doesn't exist. If you want to send something from, say, Boston, Miami, there are no container ships that do that route. You have to put it on a truck. You have to put it on rail because shipping doesn't exist. We've taken one of the most efficient ways of moving goods from point A to point B and basically made it impossible here within the 48 states because it's so absurdly expensive. It just seems like with so many things wrong with it, with the changes that we've made in international trade in our country's history, the fact that rightly or wrongly, the administration wants to prioritize exports and how this impacts our ability to transport goods to our own states. And you've got economists from Milton Friedman all the way to Paul Krugman who oppose it. Why is the Jones Act still around? That's that's an excellent question. Uh, you know, there's so many absurd aspects of this law. So why does it persist? I, I think the best explanation here is the age-old phenomenon of dispersed costs and concentrated benefits. Your average American, not only are they not, you know, they don't really feel the Jones Act cost because it is so dispersed, but they don't even know the Jones Act exists. So you know, there's there's um, that lack of knowledge. You can't protest something uh, or vote against something when when you're not even aware of it in the first place. But rest assured, the people that benefit from the Jones Act. So we're talking here about the U.S. shipbuilders because, after all, this is a law that says you have to buy what they make. It benefits the U.S. carriers. These are the ship operators because it's very limited competition. So you know, again, going back to the non-contiguous states and territories. Lost in something to Alaska, there's only two companies to choose from. Hawaii, there's only two to choose from. For Puerto Rico, there are two companies that have 85% of the container capacity. So duopolies all over the place. That's great for them. And you can rest assured that they are on Capitol Hill all the time, making the case for this, lobbying their congressmen, and donating generously to their campaigns and making their voices heard. While on the other side, there is no organized anti-Jones Act lobbying group. There is no organization in the United States that is explicitly dedicated to the Jones Act reform or repeal, while there are numerous groups who, you know, I would say the main purpose or one of their main purposes is to preserve this law. One thing we heard last week from OMB is that they're considering waiving Jones Act requirements during the current corona COVID-19 crisis. What impact do you think that would have on our ability to transport goods during this crisis? Well, I think we've already heard anecdotal stories about uh, strains on our our transportation networks. Uh, I just know that when I go to the grocery store, there are numerous items missing. I believe the other day, the Trump administration relaxed rules regarding trucking. I think that reflects strains on our, our transportation network. 
And I think that access to the Jones Act would be just one more way of moving goods across the country and, and getting them from where they're produced to where they're needed. I think the Jones Act, something we should keep in mind is that foreign ships are already in our ports. They're not only in our ports, but they will actually go between U.S. ports dropping off goods that originated from a foreign source. So we have all these ships along our coast already there moving between our ports, but they can't take something from one point in the U.S. to another point. This is basically, I think this is basically properly thought of as a conveyor belt that exists outside our coast that Americans cannot use, that we don't have access to. And why not? You know, as free people, I think we should all be able to, to take advantage of this. So Colin and Carla, frankly, one thing that's popping up in my mind when we're discussing this, um, and I'm, I'm sure our listeners are thinking this as well, has the Jones Act been waived before? It has. Uh, the most recent example of this uh, was in 2017 following uh, Hurricane Maria, which uh, hit Puerto Rico. It was waived for a period of 10 days so that foreign flagships could transport goods from the U.S. to Puerto Rico. But the problem with this waiver process is that waivers can only be issued under a national security rationale. That if, if it's determined that the Jones Act is an impediment or hurting national security, and a, a waiver can be issued, there is no system for issuing waivers on purely economic grounds. That really constrains the ability of the administration to, to relieve Americans of this burden in times of crisis, such as right now, because this is not an explicit national security issue. So it, it makes it very difficult to, to relieve this burden. Since you bring up national security, does the Jones Act have an impact on America's national security? So the, the logic behind the Jones Act, or what you'll be told by people who support the Jones Act, is that because of the Jones Act, because of that, say, for example, the U.S. build requirement, it assures that the United States has shipbuilders, which could be useful in times of war. It also means that uh, because it's, it limits Americans to U.S. flagged ships, the logic there is that uh, if a war hits, we are guaranteed to have a fleet of ships that can be relied upon to transport goods you know, from the United States to wherever they're needed in, in the world. So that, that's the theory. But I think the reality suggests that this national security rationale hasn't exactly worked out very well. Uh, a prime example of this is if you go back to the 1991 Persian Gulf War, Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. This is the kind of situation I think a lot of people think the Jones Act was made for. Uh, we had a situation where we needed to rush uh, supplies and equipment from the United States to Saudi Arabia. And so thankfully, we had a lot of ships and mariners to crew those ships, right? Well, no, not exactly. That's not how it worked out at all. In fact, the United States faced a real shortage of ships. We had to use, I believe, 177 foreign ships to help transport our supplies and material for to move U.S. forces. These uh, ships moved, I think, 25% of all unit equipment or foreign flag ships. But we weren't just short of ships. We were also short of mariners to crew the U.S. ships. Uh, we had to uh, use lots of retirees, including veterans of the Vietnam War, the Korean War, World War II. There were at least uh, two People that served who were in their 80s, the oldest, they had at least one guy who was 92 years old. That's how bad the situation was to crew these ships and to find adequate numbers of mariners. They almost ran out of mariners, but then in January, the, the uh, Great Lakes froze over. 
So people that cruise ships on the Great Lakes, those guys were freed up then to go serve on some of these ships to transport goods to Saudi Arabia. And just remember, this was 30 years ago. Since then, the U.S. Jones Act fleet has only become smaller. I'd also point out that out of all the Jones Act ships, so these U.S. flagged, U.S. built ships, the number of ships that actually transported goods or military supplies from the United States to Saudi Arabia, there was one. There was only one. And that wouldn't be any different today because remember, these ships are all being used transporting goods to Hawaii, to Puerto Rico, to elsewhere in the United States. If they were used to support the U.S. military, well, who's going to take the goods to other parts of the United States? It would be severe imposition on our economy. So these ships are rarely, rarely used. So the whole rationale, I think, when you really put it to scrutiny, it falls apart. So, I mean, we really don't want to pick winners and losers, right? That's the common phrase, you know, a lot of times with free market people like Cato, like Alec talks about when it comes to government policies. But are there specific industries that might suffer if the Jones Act were repealed? Well, that's an interesting question because, you know, again, you know, the logic of the Jones Act is that on the one hand, it is protectionism and it imposes some very real costs on the U.S. economy. On the other hand, at least theoretically, it assures us of this strong maritime sector that could be relied upon in times of conflict. But the problem here is that we have the costs are very real, but the benefits, uh, not so much. If you look at the U.S. maritime sector, it's doing extremely poorly. If you go back to the 1950s, we had something like 450 Jones Act ships. Today, there are 99. I mean, as recently as the year 2000, I think there are 193. So the fleet has almost gone down by half just in the last 20 years. The number of mariners to crew those ships keeps going down. And that's not a surprise. A U.S. built ship can cost up to five times more than one built in another country. So we're basically saying to the U.S. maritime sector, hey, you want to use ships? Well, you got to pay out the nose for those ships. You have to pay up to five times more for those ships. And when you make something more expensive, you're going to get less of it. So I would submit that the U.S. maritime industry is not profiting from this. Um, all that said, you know what what would be the most immediate effects of, of uh, repealing the Jones Act? You know there are a handful of shipyards left in this country that build uh, large ships, but their production is really minimal. Uh, average year they produce two or three ships. Uh, this year the United States is scheduled to produce two ships. Out of all our shipyards collectively, two ships. Uh, next year, they're scheduled to deliver one. In 2022, currently looks like they will deliver to zero. So there's not much of an industry left there. And if you just got rid of that U.S. build requirement alone, I think that you know you'd see a lot of new ships bought and staffed and crewed, and it would provide more jobs. It would not just be good for the U.S. economy, but it would be good for the U.S. maritime sector as well. Which countries are currently the biggest shipbuilders? So 90% of large ships are built in Asia. So Japan, South Korea, and China. Now, when you when you bring up China, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, for understandable reasons, they get concerned about, do we want to be reliant on, on China for, for shipbuilding? And, you know, there, that's a point that's worth addressing and worth noting. But let's also uh, point out that Japan and South Korea are not just friends of ours, they are military allies of the United States. These are countries that we have defense treaties with, and they are very efficient producers of, of ships. So I, I don't see you know an issue with relying on them. Now, those when I say the 90%, these, these are talking about you know large cargo ships, for example. But if you look at Europe, 
they also produce ships as well, but smaller vessels, for example, um, dredging vessels, uh, vessels that are used to take supplies to offshore oil platforms, fishing vessels. Actually, the Europeans are also leaders in building cruise ships. So, you know, they've been able to find competitive niches uh, and really excel, whereas the U.S. maritime sector really has no niche. So, Carla, to loop back the conversation a little bit toward ALEC and our task forces, what action or effort, if any, have members of the International Relations Task Force um, engaged on the Jones Act? Well, we've got model policy on energy exports where we reference the need to repeal the Jones Act, but we don't have any model policy yet on the Jones Act specifically. However, at our most recent national conference this past December, we had several policy discussions um, about the Jones Act. And I could tell that the questions I was getting from our members, there's a very high probability that within the coming year, one or more of our members is probably going to draft model policy in support of lifting the Jones Act. Interesting. So we will have to keep a look out on the International Relations Task Force at ALEC. Um, We're going to go ahead and make sure we link to that model policy in the show notes. We'll also link to two policy analyses that Colin um, has done at the Cato Institute. We'll link that in the show notes. Um, That is the end of our segment today, though. I'm Dan Reynolds, host of ALEC Across the States. Colin, thank you so much for calling in and giving our listeners a dive into the Jones Act and how reform can be uh, so beneficial. Thank you very much for having me. Of course. And Carla, thank you so much for calling in and helping set up this awesome conversation on the Jones Act. Thank you, Colin. And thank you, Dan. Of course. And if you're interested in having your ideas highlighted on ALEC Across the States, please feel free to email me at acrossthestates at alec.org. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council. 